Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. This inside clip is from full episode 53, Michael and Courtney's interview with Jacopo Baggio. Jacopo is an assistant professor at the School of Politics, Security, and International Affairs at the University of Central Florida. In this insight clip, Jacopo answers a few questions related to the need for multiple methods and the challenges associated with social science research. This is the In Common Podcast. But just on a note of not rant, <laughs> um, I, well, you were talking there, what I loved was how I could see, you know, this intersection between the the experimental work on the theory of mind and the individual, and then you start bringing it up to the social networks, and maybe that social network piece would then connect it back to, you know, the um, more where we traditionally study collective action problems at the group level. Um, so I'm excited to see where that work goes. Um, I have a slide that I often show. I think, Mike, you saw that uh, probably once or twice, in which I show first, I show how an image of the brain and uh, little figures within, and then how these relate uh, to individuals. Individuals connect to each other, and uh, by connecting to each other about their own ideas, they come to an agreement about certain institutional arrangements, uh, or, or sorry, within a group, and those groups then talk to each other, and those groups then generate institutional arrangements, or sometimes it's just one group, sometimes it's multiples, and those institutional arrangements interact with institutional arrangements from other groups and other groups of groups, and then you can have this co-evolution of the two. There is no direct, no, it's not that we build, you know, when you build something, you have a brick and then you build a house. Here, the house also shapes the brick. So it's a little bit different when we talk about uh, collective action in social, social groups. It's not just that the, the basic building blocks build something, but the building defines the building blocks as well. So it's this continuous no interactions between, because also we know that the, you know, general intelligence and theory of mind can change thanks to education and cultural environments. Uh, they're not fixed. They're not immutable. They're not the properties of a specific material that it stays. And we know exactly how it's going to react depending on specific physical forces that we apply to it. We're very different. No, humans are a different breed, a little bit harder to study. I mean, it relates to this um, distinction between structure and agency that, that goes back a ways, I think mostly in sociology, but certainly on several different social science research programs. We all kind of want to simplify the world by pointing an arrow from A to B, but we all kind of understand intuitively that endogeneity is everywhere and that ultimately it's, it's pointing both ways all the time. So, you know, what do you, and I, this is something I've struggled with is given that we all kind of know that causation is, pick your keyword, evolutionary, evolutionary cumulative, self-reinforcing, all these things. It's those aspects of change that are the hardest to really wrangle analytically. It's kind of, again, it gets back to the fact that we know that historical accident matters a lot because of sensitivity to initial conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But how do you make that into, how does that make it into a PDF? <laughs> uh, <laughs> how does it make it into a PDF and not just by, not analytically, right? Because we have a lot of articles that, that say like, oh, the, you know, we have the first page of half the articles I read are basically boilerplate about how things are complex, nonlinear, and usually you see the word interplay somewhere in there, right? But how do you actually, it's, this is kind of was Courtney's question, I think, to us is like, how do we, 
actually analytically understand these things? How do you, how could you take, how could you systematize the study of history? I suppose I should ask a historian this. So one, one way is of, uh, now, here's the quantitative person in me coming out, but uh, is having a good time dimension and frequency of data. Right. And uh, the right tool, and now we have the technology uh, to actually make sense of uh, these type of patterns, I think. Uh, we can, uh, there are new techniques, uh, machine learning techniques uh, that, uh, and by the way, a regression is a machine learning technique now. Uh, I know that some people divide them, but uh, they are in the same realm. And, uh, and so it's always, I think uh, then it becomes very important to really clarify what you are looking, what is the system you're analyzing, what are you asking, what is your question, and from there, you try to find the, the, the proper modeling or analytical strategies. And I always contend the fact that there is, that there is no perfect way. Uh, there are multiple ways to reach the same goal. And, uh, but the better ways are the ones that uh, are iter iterative. And so you can just say, so in this case, you would do, you, know, you can try to analyze the archival research with historical precedents, see how the case is today. And so you go, in the field and really try to understand a specific con context and everything. And then you go back, you try to build uh, from the cover research and what you observe, you try to abstract the fundamental properties, build the model and try to see how that model plays out, how it reproduces the past and what are the trajectories that it's uh, proposing for the future. And then theoretically, you should go back to that same case and observe it again and see if those trajectory happen and then try to modify them. And in this iterative process, we might be able to get to these causal feedback mechanisms. No? Uh, I think without it, we are always left to wonder if we are right. Does that answer your question, Mike? Yeah, there was a part of me just wanted to like end the interview right there with that little. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, these are, these are hard issues. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I really like your allegiance to multiple methods, Jacopo. I think it's um, it's a challenging space to be in because we're all kind of incentivized to be the person in the room that does X and not necessarily Y and Z. And the danger there is is similar to it's essentially that method becomes your own panacea, right? And so we have this well developed discourse in our field about you know institutional overreach where someone says, "Oh, ITQs should be implemented everywhere." Well, there's a methodological equivalent of that where someone says, "Well, I want to shove everything in neuroaggression." Yeah, well, what I wrote uh, recently, actually, we published a book with my dad. That was, uh, I was, I'm very proud of it. Uh, and uh, we actually have a chapter on the fact that there is no uh, right technique. The right technique depends on your question and depends on the data that you have and uh, what you actually, uh, and also the effort and the cost that you need to put into to collect uh, the right data that you need. And by data here, I'd be very broad and uh, data are both numbers and quantitative data, but also our values, beliefs, life histories. Those are data. Just uh, sometimes people, I don't know if people call it that way, but uh, no. And so depending on those two main elements, then you can devise your, your strategy, but you should never be married to a single method. It's like when people say, oh, I would like to do a network analysis. My first question is why? What does it give you that other techniques don't? Why, why do you think it's an appropriate method study? And if we're being honest, half the answer is because they make really cool figures. <laughs> or because that's the only thing I know. Mm. You know, that's the other thing. It's like, oh, because I've always done it. Or it's because it's uh, fashionable and it sells. 
in our in our world means get the paper published easier. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I was thinking um, as you're talking there, Jacopo, about your work and the me- the multiple methods, because that really stood stood out to me when I was you know trying to get a sense of your work is really a lot of different computational methods. Somebody is blowing leaves outside my window. Um, apologies, um, but the I was thinking of that post Ostrom paper again, and this idea of you know multiple methods and having the this sort of case study as the basis historically speak to some of these new methods. Um, it seems like that's really something that you're doing, you know, embodying in your work. So maybe I'm an- answering the question that I asked you both earlier. <laughs> you know, how do we move forward in this space? And it, it, you know, and it seems like methodologically you're doing that. You're you're pulling the empirical through the experiments, and you're bringing that into the agent-based models um, and the social networks. You're pulling through the um, case studies, bringing it up to generalize, you know, be more generalizable. And just a comment on that, that I think that's really, it's, it shows through in your work and it's really neat to see. And I think that is a, a path forward is, is bringing these different tools together and not being a methodological purist there, but, you know, being pragmatic about how you can answer the questions with what we have at hand. So I honestly wish we had this conversation a few weeks ago because I would have recorded you. <laughs> exactly what you said in my tenure package. <laughs> I'll just write him a note. <laughs> <laughs> Send him a sticky note. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that sums it up uh, perfectly well. I wouldn't know how to comment on that comment, to be honest. Uh, I think that uh, that's very important. Uh, if we want to understand uh, uh, the issues of today that are worthy of investigation, in my view, then we cannot do that by me being methodological purist or being married to a specific uh, epistemology uh, and never try to look what other ideas out there on how we gain knowledge about science, no? It's like this idea uh, that, uh, po- that uh, came out with the positivism uh, in which we divide the hard to the soft sciences. And I think they got their name wrong, but that's a different story. You know, uh, there's a great quote by Gelman that if I remember correctly, something around, uh, imagine how hard physics would be if, uh, if atoms could think. No? And so imagine now that uh, some, some, somebody says, oh, I'm spinning the other direction today. Uh, that doesn't happen. And in human terms, yes, it does oftentimes. And you don't even know why, it just happens. And so, but if we go back to the story, to Stoicism and Aristotle and how they perceive the world, they really looked at the one single system in which you have the logic or the, the, you know, the, the modeling in your head. And then you look at the empirical works and you, com- you combine that with values and beliefs and the politics of it. And if you don't have these four aspects that uh, Van Nieuwen called the Tetraedon of knowledge, you cannot really understand the problem at hand. But to understand these four aspects, you cannot rely on one single method. And so you see how that those are related. And so you need not only multiple disciplines possibly, uh, or I would call it multiple theories, uh, to try to explain certain aspects of it that, and try to integrate them rigorously, obviously, not just, uh, no. but also you need these different methods because those are, that's the only way you can really bring things together in, in a coherent way. Uh, as there is another great uh, quote uh, that uh, I often show to people that uh, ask me about inter- the difference between interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity. And uh, this might, might not be okay to say, but uh, if you mix uh, Jack Daniels, vodka, rum, and uh, sparkling wine and whatever, your stomach might revolt. 
but there is a way in which in the right uh, order, in the right mixing, with the right mixing, the combination is very tasty and it's really good. And so that's the difference. Now, one thing is like putting everything together, but really combining them rigorously, it's, it's a challenge. And I think uh, we need more uh, th serious thinking about how to integrate these parts and the idea that models are hypothesis generating tools as much as other things. And they're just one of the elements on the toolbox. So for me, for example, for and this goes a little bit on graduate students training, I think that each graduate students uh, uh, should surely specify what they really need, but should have an idea of all the methods that are out there, especially in the social sciences. And so my idea of a research methods course is that you should always start, you should start, no, you go and you try to give an idea or two hours on each methods that you possibly can, or, or most of them that you can use, no? From focus group service to life history, to statistical analysis, modeling, uh, no, system dynamics or agent-based, uh, QCA, qualitative comparative analysis, and other techniques. And that's because at least you know what's out there. And then it's up to you to decide what is best based on this specific, uh, no, your research questions, the assumptions you make, and the cost and efforts that uh, it takes to collect the data you need, and if you have the data available or not. So those are, I think, the very important elements that go together. I think we should end the interview on that cocktail mixture. Yep, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. If you are new to the podcast, feel free to explore our previous episodes on our website www.incommonpodcast.org They can also be found on just about any other podcast player. If you're on Twitter, you can connect with us there where we share updates, new episodes, and blog posts associated with the podcast. Thanks again.